I invite you to uh, this morning to look at the book of Luke. We're going to be we're going to spend the next four weeks um, in just one very small passage, and and this this year has been kind of the year of the Gospel of Luke. Um, uh, we had uh, Michael Card here. We did the Biblical Imagination Conference. We had our Sunday where we read through the Gospel of Luke, where we dis- we discovered all together that it takes an hour and forty five minutes um, to read through the Gospel of Luke. But today I want I want to start a series. We're going to be looking very specifically at what is called the Song of Zechariah. Uh, now Zechariah is uh, the son the uh, the father of John the Baptist. And um, the Gospel of Luke begins with an encounter with him and an angel. Uh, And the angel appears to him in the temple, tells him that he's going to have a son, and uh, and Zechariah asks, how can I know this? Um, Now, he's been married for a while. They haven't had any children. His uh, His wife is not at the age where she's going to be have children. So he asks a real practical question. It's in verse 18. And he says, how shall I know this? I'm old. My wife is advanced in years. You notice, you notice, by the way, that even back then, men had to be careful with the way that they described their age and their wife's age. I am old. She's advanced in years. She's just a finer vintage, you know, a smart man. Um, and, uh, and then the angel strikes him dumb. He can't speak. Uh, until the baby is born. He goes home, his wife um, conceives, and they have this, this baby, and there's a whole interaction with, with Elizabeth, his wife, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, when, when uh, Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb. Um, and, and then John is born, uh, and they want to name him after a family member. They want to name him Zachariah. They want to give him all his names, and, and Zachariah insists that they call him John. He has to write it on a tablet. Um, it would have been... Um, we read that it, it, it would have been a wax tablet and he would have scratched it into the wax and said his name is John. And then he can speak. And the first thing that, that Zechariah does when he speaks is he sings this song. Um, it's, in, it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 uh, through 80. And we're actually going to, the next four weeks we're just going to focus excuse me, on this song. And uh, the, the, Luke is full of songs. Luke and Paul are full of songs. They're, they may not have been able to sing, but they wrote a lot of songs. And, and this is the song that Zachariah sings. Zachariah, his father, this John the Baptist, um, who is the cousin of Jesus, he's going to be the forerunner of Jesus. He's going to preach uh, repentance as Jesus um, comes on the scene. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Would you join me again in a word of prayer? Father, once again we come to your word. We come to words written on a page that through your spirit revealed to us the word who is written in eternity. Turn our focus and our attention to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we consider these words, this song sung so long ago that echoes down through the ages and tells us of our God. May we be united in spirit and in heart as we continue to worship together. We pray this, Father, um, in the name of Jesus the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We know from Luke 1 that Zechariah was a good man. He was a righteous man. Uh, he was a priest. He was uh, probably uh, of the the persuasion of the Pharisees, who sometimes get a bad rap, but really were um, a group that in general they were well-intentioned, if a little misguided. In some cases a lot misguided. But when, um, when he gets this vision from the angel in chapter 1, he, he just can't believe it. Because although he was a good and righteous man, and he had all of his, his stuff together, although he had figured out everything, and he had gone to priest school, or whatever it was that he did for training, and he was in the temple, and he knew how to keep kosher, and he knew the rules on how to behave, and, and it seems like, he, despite the fact that he was a priest, um, he, he was standing in opposition to those who were corrupting the priesthood that Jesus would deal with later. But he says... Um, How shall I know this? In verse 18. He says, well, how do I know that God is going to do this thing that you just told me God is going to do? And I would propose that though Zechariah was a a good man, a righteous man, uh, God was in a supporting role in his life rather than in a sovereign role. See, this is one of those things I've mentioned this. I can't stand the bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. If he's your co-pilot, move over. He is not our co-pilot. He's supposed to be sovereign over our lives. But so often, we who live in the real world, quote-unquote, we tend to think, okay, all this God stuff is great and wonderful and it's nice to know. We have a lot of head knowledge about it. But over time, we tend to move God into kind of a supporting role of our lives. We still pray. We're still good. We're still righteous. We still read our Bibles. We still, but, but God's kind of hanging out over here on the side. And, and we, it's not like we're, we're, we're you know... We're avoiding him or anything. Um, it's just that it's just that you know I've got my life to live and the God stuff is good and and I believe it and everything. But I, I got to deal with the real life. I've told the story about the 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 last stanza of uh, the poem um, 
uh, Footprints in the Sand, you know, the whole poem, and I can't memorize poetry, so I'm not going to try, but, um, but uh, you get that whole poem where, you know, the, Jesus is walking with a guy in the, on the beach, and if, if I told you this again, told you this, this is your time to check your phone. Um, the, but the, the, he's walking with Jesus, there's the two steps, and then, and then he looks back, and sometimes there's just one set of footprints, and he says to Jesus, he says, uh, he says, you know, why are there only one set of footprints? And Jesus says, well, those are the times that I carried you. And then he looks further back, and there's just this big, huge, wide smudge. This is the last verse that never gets quoted, because it's not really there. And, and uh, he says, well, what's that? He goes, oh, that's where I was dragging you. Um, you know, so, so sometimes, sometimes in our relationship with God, he's supposed to be sovereign, but, but he kind of takes a supporting role, because he's, he's sort of quiet most of the time. He doesn't yell and bellow at us that we need to do stuff most of the time. Last week we talked about how it's only really in the crises that we the crises that we realize whether we're dependent on God or not. Because when we look, you know, because he's not yelling in our ear the whole time. He's not a drill instructor screaming at us to get over that next hurdle. But rather, he's he's a, he's an ever-present sovereign power, um, that, and we tend to take him for granted. And that's where Zachariah was. And then he's struck dumb, and he has to watch. Can you... All right, so in one sense, this may be a blessing. If your wife is pregnant, and she's oldish, advanced in years, it's difficult enough to be pregnant when you're young. But can you imagine a, an, a woman advanced in age, in years, with already a bad back and already issues and all these things, and now she gets to carry a baby to full term? By the way, a hyperactive baby, because when, when Mary shows up, the one that recognizes that Jesus has been conceived in Mary's womb is John in Elizabeth's womb, that advanced in years womb, going... <laughs> and I'm sure the first time he did that, Elizabeth went, oh, that was cute. But it's like, I mean, she's a grandparent's age, and she's dealing with infant John wearing, you know, I mean, John is not a normal person. We find out later. John's kind of got a fiery attitude, which means he was one of those excitable children. Um, you know, and you just imagine. <laughs> anyway, so while she's pregnant, Zechariah, he can't talk. He never has to answer the question, do I look fat? All he can do is smile and nod, which we, fathers, have discovered is the easiest answer to all the complicated questions, right? Because if you try to fix it, does it ever work, guys? Your, your pre- wife is pregnant, she's talking to you about all these issues she's dealing with, and you try to fix it, does that ever work? Nah, just whatever you need, dear. Rub my feet. Okay. Um, Zechariah, he doesn't get to speak. The whole time he struck dumb. Now some of the ladies in the room are going, that would be a blessing to Elizabeth. <laughs> and then when the child is born and he, he recognizes who he's supposed to be, Zachariah's mouth is opened and the first thing he does is sing this song. And, and it's worth noting that when Zechariah sings this song, he doesn't sing it in the Greek that we have in the New Testament. Now this is the inspired word of God um, and it was inspired in Greek, but he would have sung this in Aramaic or probably Hebrew because he was a priest. Uh, and he opens with the line, Blessed is the Lord our 
God. All right, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so when he sang that in Hebrew or Aramaic, he would have been calling out the covenant name of God. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he joins his voice with the voice of many who came before. Uh, the servant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 24, who when God provides to him, brings to him the woman that Abraham's son Isaac would marry, Rebekah, he sings, blessed is uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, because Israel is Abraham's grandson, so we couldn't say that yet. Exodus chapter 18, Moses says, blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel. 1 Samuel 25, 32 First uh, Chronicles 16:36. David sings, "Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel." Psalm 41, 72, 106. This is the song Israel sings when God shows up and acts out of nowhere. When He does the thing that we were hoping He would do, but didn't, weren't totally sure that He would do. When he acts at the moment that is well beyond the time that we thought he should act. How long did Zechariah and Elizabeth pray for a child before she reached a point where she was too advanced in years to have a child? And those prayers ended. Because now it was beyond the limit of even God, they thought. God shows up out of nowhere, and when Israel sings, they sing, Blessed be the Lord our God of Israel, over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And then he says this, For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's the line we're really just going to focus on today. Those three actions, the God who acts... He has visited his people, he has redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. And we can see, folded into this song, and the reason that Luke includes this song, um, most of the Gospels are didactic, which means they're intended to teach us something. Um, Folded into this are three characteristics of the God of Israel, the God who shows up out of nowhere, the God who acts, that we, we can grab onto in this song and affirm as true. First, he says, God has visited his people. Our God is not distant or remote. He has not forgotten about us. He visits. He comes. He stays. And, and the Greek word here is not visit as like... like um, my favorite kind of visit, which is I show up, I say hello, I leave. Um, But rather, that he comes and he dwells. God has visited, God has come and dwelt among his people. How could we have forgotten that the God of Sinai was the God who sat around a meal with Abraham? How could we have forgotten that the God who brought us out of the exile was the God who parted the Red Sea? How could we have forgotten that the God that we worship in Jerusalem, the God who providentially has provided for our protection, is also the God who promised us a Messiah? How have we forgotten God has visited His people? It is His imminence. The God is present that is folded into this text. Zechariah says, God is here. Before, I thought God was 
kind of not interested. Now I recognize that God visits us. And then he says, God has redeemed his people. God has not forsaken his covenant. God has not, not separated himself from those that he formed a bond with. A bond founded in his very character and being. Israel was not God's chosen people because of who Israel was. Israel was God's chosen people because of who God is. And we get things backwards all the time. We think sometimes that, that we, are, we are Christians because of who we are. But we're not Christians because of who we are. We're Christians because of who God is. We're able to come to faith in Christ not because of what we are, because what we are ain't that great. But it is because of who He is. And people want to debate about how God works, how His mind works, how He calls, how He redeems, how He, how he touches the lives of people. That's for Him to know. It's built into His character. All we can do is sit back and say, Wow, God, I'm sure glad you are who you are and not me. Because if you were me, life would be terrible. Because I'm a pretty petty person. God has redeemed His people. Our God is active. He doesn't visit our people. This is this is amazing part. I, I love you, you guys know me not long enough, well enough to know that I have a warped brain. Um, I love these strange moments in the Bible, and one of the coolest, weirdest moments in the Bible is a passage in Leviticus where it's talking about digging latrines. I'm sure you've all really excited about this. All right. But one of the things that is commanded in the law of Moses is that when you dig a latrine, you don't put it in a pathway and you cover it when you're done. And the reason that is said in scriptures is because the Lord your God walks in the camp. Not, we don't want you to step in it because then sticks and cleaning out of the treads of sandals, it's awful. The Lord your God walks in your midst. He is present and he is active in our world and our lives. He is not forsaken. He redeems. So he's imminent. He visits his people. He's active. He redeems his people. And then there's this line, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, for most of us, as we read that line, we're probably thinking horns, right? Which is a weird image. He has raised up, ow. All right? Now what it says, he has raised up a horn. This is the horn, this, this is a direct quote from Psalm 18. The scriptures say in Psalm 18, David is actually singing and he says, you, we wait for the, let me, let me read it, why don't I, rather than misquoting it, why don't I give it to you? All right, Psalm 18, which comes before 61, Eric. All right, there we go. Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my refuge, in whom I take ref, uh, my my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What is a horn of salvation? When 
you lived in a semi-agrarian society in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. You did not live in fortified homes. You lived out on the pastures. If you were a, a farmer, you lived out where your fields were. If you were a shepherd, you lived out where your sheep were. And when enemies were coming, the, the guys on the watchtower, the Migdol, the, the, they would build these towers on the high, high ground around an area. When the guys in the watchtower saw that someone was coming, an enemy was coming, they would live lift up the horn of salvation and they would blast it. And everybody out in the countryside knew, get to the stronghold, get to the city, hide yourselves in the caves and the hills because the raiders are coming. He has lifted up a horn of, of my salvation. This is, this is the horn you blow when you want to protect your people. This is the horn you blow when you are going to save those who rely upon you. It's the the declaration of the king's protection. Now, David quotes it and says in Psalm 18, he's talking about the Lord being the horn of salvation. But here, Zechariah is foreseeing that Jesus would raise his voice and call us to himself. And Jesus means, Yeshua means salvation. He calls us through His voice and through His Spirit to Him. It is not only the horn of salvation, but it is the horn horn of protection. It is the horn of salvation. And it's the horn of triumph. It's also the horn that you blasted when you were coming up on a, a city that where everybody had gathered and they were all protected inside the city. And of course, in those days it was siege warfare, so the enemy would gather around the city and they would just wait you out. They would just wait till you were hungry or thirsty enough to surrender. And so those guys on the watchtower, they would sit and they would wait for the liberating army of the king or the strong man that had been summoned to come and rescue them. And they would wait and wait and wait and wait. And then would come that moment. It's so beautifully depicted in uh, the return of the, or the, the two towers um, in uh, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the, the movie adaptations kind of mess with the books a little bit. And don't watch The Hobbit, it's in a travesty. But, um, but, the, but there's this moment where Gandalf appears on the edge at dawn. And he rides down with his army and he's on a white horse. and all this. That's the same image here. When, the, when the, watch, the watchman out on the tower saw the coming army of the king coming to liberate the city, they would blast the horn of salvation to let you know the king is on his way. You only have to wait a little bit longer. You only have to survive a few more moments. You only have to barricade the door for a little while because the king is coming with his armies. God has raised up a horn of salvation. Zechariah had a long time. He had nine months, almost ten months, to reflect on what it meant for an angel to show up in the temple and tell him that his son was going to be the messenger that was going to go before the Lord God himself. And Zechariah's shift is born from a renewed and a realigned faith. His priorities have to change in the presence of the revelation of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ himself coming. 
Because if John was who the angel was saying that John was going to be, that meant that Mary's son, Jesus, was going to be the one that, that Mary said he was going to be. And that meant the world was about to change. That meant the king was on his way. That meant God, the imminent, active God, was coming to bring something extraordinary into a world that for Zechariah had just become ordinary. So when we look at the Advent season, we are looking at a season that celebrates the arrival of the King. Not just 2,000 years ago, which I I believe, and and I'm enough of a pointy-headed fundamentalist that I believe Jesus actually was born of a virgin. Um, He was laid in a manger, uh, he, he was visited by the Magi and the shepherds. I, I'm, I'm enough of a, a Bible not to believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that He was the Son of God, that He was Emmanuel, God with us. I, I, I'm just enough crazy to believe that. And so I believe that Advent is not just about that historical moment, but I also mean believe it is a season where we can renew and revive and reinvigorate a faith that maybe is good and righteous, but has God in a supporting role. It's an opportunity for us to kind of dig down into our thinking. Some of us have been Christians for so long, and it's so routine, it's like that that pair of pants. I I have this thing about... Sorry, this is is a weird illustration, but I'm going to throw it out anyway. Um... I have no legs. I don't know if you guys have noticed. I wear I wear 36 27 pants, also known as shorts for skinny people. Um, and and I so my thing about blue jeans is no matter how, no matter what I do with my blue jeans, I always wind up wearing out the back of the pants. The um the down this part always drags on the ground. I feel like. Um, but the, the, it, it always wears out. And I don't even notice it because it's the back of my feet. I don't pay attention to my head, nonetheless the back of my feet. So I don't notice it. And it just, I just kind of get in. It's just a routine. And I don't think about it. And it's all right. And I have this thing. This is going to gross you all out. But I, I wear blue jeans for like weeks on end. Um, because they're blue jeans. They don't really get dirty. Just air them out, shake them, and keep moving. Um, By the way, the CEO of Levi Strauss said you should only wash your blue jeans once a year. I'm not at that level yet, but um, but I I, I have my I don't even think about it. I get up in the morning, I put my blue jeans on. I wear blue jeans six days of the week. The only day of the week, actually, the only couple of hours a week that I'm not wearing blue jeans is this, Um, and uh, or you know special occasions. But um, then I wear my black blue jeans. Um, But the uh, black blue jeans anyway. the back of my, my pants wear out, and I don't notice it because it just becomes routine. It just comes normal. You know what else happens to me with my blue jeans? I don't know if you've any of you experienced this. Um, be, what my legs make up for, what my legs lack in length, they make up for in girth. Um, and so I tend to bust the seams and the knees of my, my blue jeans, and I don't notice because they're comfortable, and I just do my thing, and... I wear them and I, I do all kinds of stuff in them and you know and then unless they get dirty I get something on them I just wear them. And then I get a new pair of blue jeans. 
And I go, ooh. You know, I don't have little threads hanging all over the place. I, I don't feel, you know, the breeze through my knees. And I go, oh, this is what blue jeans are supposed to feel like. You know, as Christians, sometimes our faith, it just becomes like that old, comfortable pair of blue jeans. We don't notice the holes. We don't notice the problems. We just kind of just go through it, and it's good, and it's comfortable, and it's easy. Um, and then it has to be renewed. It has to be uh, reawakened. It has to be recreated. And that's what happens for Zechariah. He, his faith had become comfortable, and, and it had become user-friendly, and it had become tame. So tame that he was willing to question an angel. I still have questions about that. I just, I mean, angel appears to you and he goes, I, I, wait, hold on. It's an angel for crying out loud. Um, but he, he legitimately, this by the way, theologically is called, hermeneutically is called the great reversal. Through the Gospel of Luke, the people that are supposed to understand don't understand, and the people who aren't supposed to understand always do. So, uh, Zachariah misses it. He doesn't understand it. Um, he's a priest. He's in the temple. He should understand it. Mary is a teenage girl, unmarried, living on the backside of nowhere. She gets it. He doesn't. She does. All right. Um, that's what Luke is doing. But with Zechariah, though, I mean, why? Why doesn't he get it? Because his faith had been comfortable and easy. And the imminent, active, triumphant God was just in a supporting role. So let's take this season of Advent as we, as we consider um, the first week of Advent. We consider the idea of hope. And, and we light that candle and we think about this. Let's think for a moment. What is hope if our faith is just a comfortable pair of blue jeans? What's the point of hope if we already have everything we think we're going to get from God? What's the point of hope if we're just resigned to, oh well, God's at work? When, when, we, when we pray and we say, well God, you know, I mean, we don't want to bother you with this, but if you could take care of this thing. I have some real active things that I'm praying for right now. And you know what? I don't pray to God. Um, you know, God, if you think about it, if you get around to it, you know, I'm here in the temple doing the sacrifice. And I know it's kind of not going to work for you. You know, I'm okay, whatever. These things which are going to take miracles to have happen. I believe in an active, imminent God who is triumphant and sovereign. So when I pray, if God put it on my heart to pray for it, I just go ahead and go full bore with that prayer. Dear God, here's the thing that's going on. and I have no idea what the crazy thing is you're going to do in order to work this out. But hey, I'm on board. Let's ride. And if you don't, work, if you don't do it, that's okay. I'm okay with you not doing it. But I believe that you're going to do this thing. And it's going to be unbelievable when you do this thing. And it's going to be super cool. And we're all going to look around and go, wow, I can't believe God did that thing. Do we pray like that? Or do we pray like, dear God, now I lay me down to sleep. 
I pray thee, Lord, my sister to make weep. For she annoys and drives me nuts. I just want to kick all their backsides. Do, how do we pray? What do we do? Is God real, imminent, active, triumphant? Is he raising, has he or has he not raised up the horn of salvation that calls us to freedom and liberty from the siege of this world? So why don't we go ahead and pray, believing, hoping that a God who raised his son from the dead is going to do the things that we don't believe can be done. And if he doesn't, he doesn't because he's sovereign and we don't know his ways. But we also know he told us to ask, so we might as well do it with vigor and excitement and passion for the God of Zechariah. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we get comfortable with you. And you are dangerous. You are good, but you are frighteningly powerful. And you are loving, but you are just. And you are present, and yet you are everywhere and eternal and all-powerful. And so God, brush off the dust of our hearts. Maybe just in one part of our life that we've kind of gotten comfortable. Forgotten to pray. Lost our hope. That relationship, that person. that We, we want you to work on, but we've just kind of let it slide that aspect of our faith that we've just kind of let atrophy because it just doesn't seem like it's useful anymore. Father, enliven us with a hope seated in the God who visits and redeems and raises up the horn of salvation. We pray this in